Well, good morning. Glad you're back this Sunday. Uh, still, we're in stay-at-home orders from the government because of our present situation, and I hope you're staying safe and healthy. I am glad that you're with us today and that you're taking the time out of your day to worship the Lord with us and to listen to my remarks. And so as we get started, I want you to think back to a time in your life when you completed something that was significant, significant to you. It may have been something as simple as graduating from school, from high school or college, as you were going to start your work career. It may have been a school project, or it may have been a work project that you were working on. But it was something that took a lot of time and effort, and you gave it your all, and you were glad when you completed that project. You, there was a pressure that was released from you, and now you could relax. Well, as I was thinking about those things, I was thinking about a time in my life early on when I was in high school and how I bailed hay for four summers. Um, it was fun. It was good for me. Um, but I remember as we would get up in the morning and we'd go out and bale and we'd bale onto trailers. We would unload them. We would stack the hay in barns. We might load them onto trucks. We might unload the trucks then. But there was always something that was said, it seemed like. And that was when we got to that last bale that was taken off of the truck. And now we could go home. Was that someone would say on occasion, I was looking for that one. Why? Because that was the last one. We were finished. We had completed the work at hand. Now all that remained was for us to get in the truck, drive home, and relax and enjoy a little supper, um, enjoy watching and relaxing in front of the TV, or doing whatever we did. But it was a time that we were completed with our work. It was finished. When you complete something, it's a good feeling. It's time to relax and to regroup and plan for what's ahead. Today, Christians throughout the world are remembering and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Many preachers and pastors throughout the world will be speaking about some of the things that Jesus went through in the final hours of his life. An unlawful trial, taken to Pilate, being scourged, receiving 39 lashes, carrying his cross until he couldn't carry it anymore, and then one being forced to carry it for him, being nailed to that cross, being mocked by those Roman soldiers and other Jews that were there at the foot of the cross. They'll be talking about many things. They'll talk about that Roman soldier who pushed a spear into his side, piercing his heart. This morning, I'm not going to do those things. I want us to look at something else and consider something that I think is just as important, but something that I've been thinking about. And that are some of the words that Jesus said when he was at and on the cross. In John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, is where I am. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. So let us read there. And John writes this. After this, Jesus, knowing 
all things had already been accomplished to fulfill scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Then when he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, I think there's some important things that we can, that we can consider on this Easter Sunday. When Jesus said, It is finished. What was accomplished when Jesus died on the cross? What had God done at that point in time? Well, one of the things that I thought about was that it was the fulfillment of prophecy. You see, God planned a plan. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul states that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This means that our being found in Christ was no second thought. It was no accident. It was in the eternal purpose and plan of God. But what is the probability that this Jesus that we read about in the Gospels is, as they claim, the Son of God? Well, there are many prophecies in the Bible concerning Jesus and his life, his birth, his death. At least two websites, maybe three, I forget how many I looked at, uh, had a range of prophetic statements that they said attributed to Jesus between 108 and 356. Depending on how you looked at them, there may have been some overlap. Peter Stoner was one who, many years ago, calculated the probability of eight messianic prophecies occurring and being fulfilled in the life of Jesus, stating it would be 10 to the 17th power that would be a 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Or, to put it simply, it would be one in one quadrillion chances that it would happen that way. And so to illustrate the meaning of that number, because it's hard to comprehend one quadrillion, he asks us to imagine filling the entire state of Texas knee-deep in silver dollars, about two feet deep, Include in this huge number, there would be one silver dollar with a mark on it. Let's just say we put a black magic marker to it so we could distinguish it between all of those silver dollars. And then you turn a blindfolded person loose, he wrote. In that area of silver dollars, what would be the odds that he would pick up the first coin and be that one with the black check mark? That would be the odds, the probability of the eight messianic prophecies coming to fulfillment. Forty-eight prophecies increase the odds to one in ten to the 157th power. That's ten with 157 zeros behind it. That's a huge number. Accidental fulfillment of all of those prophecies is simply beyond the realm of possibility. God planned a plan. It had to be this way. And it came to fruition. But Satan threw up obstacles along the way. But God, often through just one, made his plan work. If we consider in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. Satan 
He's going to win, right? But then we have in chapter 3 and verse 15, the seed promise, where the promise was that Satan would have his, would bruise the head of the Messiah, but the Messiah would bruise the head of Satan. We have Cain then born, and I imagine that Adam and Eve were elated, thinking this is the one. And then there was Abel, thinking, well, maybe it would be him. Well, that turned out to have their hopes dashed because, as we know, that Cain killed Abel. And I imagine that they were crushed at that, not only losing a son, but two sons, because Cain fled. Not only that was, what's God going to do? How are we going to get out of the situation that we're in? But Seth was born. And life continued on. And I imagine, though it wasn't unfolded in their time frame, that they were still wondering, what's it going to be like? What's going to happen? Abraham received the promise of a son, but it wasn't fulfilled until he was a hundred. Israel went down into Egypt under the reign of Joseph, second in command of Pharaoh. And then they became enslaved because there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt that didn't know Joseph and didn't have respect for the Israelites. Captivity but in Egypt, but God heard their cries and sent Moses. And I can go on and on. So from Genesis 3.15, the seed promise, to Malachi chapter 4 and 5, the promise of Elijah's return, who was John the Baptist, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, and verses 13 and 14, God was at work paving the way for Jesus, for his life, his ministry, and yes, his death on a cross. And so when Jesus said it is finished, he meant in part God's work in fulfilling prophecy was finished. It was completed. But there's another aspect that we want to think about that was finished. It was Jesus' ministry on the earth. Again, I think it is great to reflect on the Jesus and the events of his death. I think we need to have an understanding of them. But in doing so, have you ever heard the phrase, heard someone say, when seeing someone who has fallen on hard times, but for the grace of God, there go I? Well, there are many questions about it. This statement is attributed to an English evangelical preacher who would later become a martyr by the name of John Bradford in 1510 to 1555 is when he lived. He is said to have uttered that variant expression, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford when seeing criminals being led to the scaffold. I think we could relate, right? We need to see the brutality that Jesus accepted for us. As Isaiah said in chapter 53, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, excuse me, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Jesus took our punishment, yours and mine, that we should do some that should do something to us. That should change us. And knowing what he went through should really have an impact on our lives. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2 and verse 24. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wound you are healed. So he's saying, in remembering what Jesus did, how he bore his sins in his body, our sins in his body on the cross, we need to die to sin, live to righteousness, to glorify and honor Christ. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6 in verse 1, answering the question that was rhetorical in his mind that might come up because he had just elaborated on being saved by grace, the grace of God. And he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? I guess their thinking he was reasoning might be along this line, that if God's grace is so gracious, is so wonderful, and, and so glorifies God, then we'll go on sinning. Because where there's more sin, there's more grace, and therefore God is glorified to even a higher degree. But Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul is saying, we've died to sin. We can't live in it any longer. We were buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. And so being buried there, that symbolizes our death. And being raised with him in newness of life means that we're going to live differently. We're going to be changed. But while Jesus lived, he lived to show us the Father. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, John wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This takes us back to the time of the Exodus wanderings, of the, excuse me, of Exodus as they fled Egypt. That time that Moses and the rest of Israel built the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent-like structure and the word that John uses, the Greek word that John uses here in, for, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, where the word be, dwelt among us, that's the word for tent. In Exodus, the tabernacle was where God lived among Israel. And now in Jesus, it's where he's living among men on this earth. And so, at some point in time, later on in that same chapter, John the Baptist would see Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But you see, Jesus just didn't live among them. Jesus taught them. He taught them what God was all about. Who God was, if you will. What the kingdom of God was all about. In the Beatitudes, in fact, even the entire Sermon on the Mount, he taught them what the kingdom of God was all about. 
One has said the Sermon on the Mount is the essence of the kingdom, and that then the Beatitudes are the essence of the essence. If you want to know what it's like to be in God's kingdom, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But if you want to distill it on down even further, you read the Beatitudes and what they teach in there. From being poor in spirit to being pure in heart, from mourning for our sins, from hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for enduring under persecution. That's what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. But he also expanded in the Sermon on the Mount their understanding of what it was like to live in the kingdom. Their understanding of the commandments from merely not doing something. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But to making a change from the heart, for I tell you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in his heart. He taught them to be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. How do we achieve that? In part by, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, by loving our enemies and praying for those who would persecute us. Jesus told them that there was a price to pay for being in his kingdom, a price to pay to be his disciple, but it would be worth it. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 24 and 25, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. So Jesus taught us, if we're going to be his disciple, we're going to live a life of denying self and say, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus desire? And we find what he would desire. We find what he would do as we read about his life in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In John chapter 13, Jesus taught humble service and love. He taught that when he took a basin of water and washed the feet of the disciples. You see, just to remind you of what it was like, they wore sandals probably all the time. And they didn't have nice concrete sidewalks and paved streets like we do. So they walked in some dirty, dusty streets that had all sorts of filth and garbage on them. And so it was very important since they reclined at a table for somebody to wash the feet of the guests. And these 12 men who lived with Jesus by this time for about three and a half years, I can just see them there looking around at each other saying, who's going to wash feet today? Looking for that slave that was going to wash their feet and finding none. I believe they probably saw that basin of water on a table and they saw a towel. And they saw Jesus get up and go over to it. To take off his cloak and to wrap that towel around him, and to take that basin of water, and to begin washing their feet. And as great as his sacrifice on the cross was, it was truly a great sacrifice when he washed the feet, not only of Peter and John and Matthew and James, but of Judas. You see, he knows what it's like to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
He embodied that. He lived that when he washed the feet of Judas, who would just moments later leave to betray him. And he taught them in that same chapter about love. He said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, love your brother. He didn't say it quite that way. Let me turn to it in, Matthew, in John chapter 13. He said, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Think about that. Love. Love one another, even as I have loved you. They saw that love when Jesus washed the feet of Judas, when he washed their feet to minister and to serve them. Because as we had read in another passage in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And yes, give his life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, he taught them a lot more. He told them in, in chapter 14, in verses 2 and 3, that he was going to prepare a place for them. And because he was going to go prepare a place for them, he was going to come back for them. He told them that he was the way to the Father and no one else, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in questioning it, well, he went on to tell them, and I'll just read from John chapter 14, verse 7 and following. If you had known me, you'd have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Well, that perplexed Philip from verse 8, he says, said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He said, If you've been watching my life, Philip, if you've been seeing the things that I was doing and the things I was saying, if you were listening to those, you would see the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does, his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Look at the things that I'm doing, Philip. They're not on my initiative. Those are the ways, the things that the Father wants. And we could go on and on. If they saw Jesus, they saw the Father. So when you and I read, again, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get a glimpse into what the Father, God in heaven, is truly like. Jesus said in John chapter 19 and verse 30, again, it is finished. But one last thought that I have for you today, he was finished because he paid the price for the sins of man. That's a lot of what many preachers will be talking about, and I guess I'm no different in this, because I'm going to talk about it too. But I want to go back to Leviticus chapter 16, 
You don't have to turn there. You can later, and I'd encourage you to read Leviticus. But in Leviticus chapter 16, this is the Day of Atonement sacrifice. On this day, Aaron would make atonement first for himself and his family by offering a bull. Then Aaron would take two goats. One would be the scapegoat, Azazel, and one would become a sacrificed offering. Azazel, the scapegoat, was taken out into the wilderness where it could never return. The other goat would be killed on the altar and its blood taken into the Holy of Holies and atonement would be made for the people. Now the Hebrew writer writes to, I believe, Jewish Christians that were falling away from Christ. And he tells them why the covenant in Christ is superior to the old. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, and I'd invite you to turn me, turn with me, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to bounce around in Hebrews for a little while. But in Hebrews chapter 1, God spoke, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, and in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is God, is what's being taught in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see that Jesus, the Son, is just as we are. Because in chapter 2, as it says in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You see, Jesus is a man. We learn in chapter 2, 100%. Covenant, the new covenant in Christ, is superior to the old. It is the fulfillment of what God had planned in Christ. In chapter 3 and 4, we see that Jesus is a high priest, a better high priest. In chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, it says we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Time of need when we're hurting, when we're shut up in our homes because of a virus that's killing many, we find help, we find comfort, we find peace in Christ. Oh, as we continue on in chapter 8 of Hebrews, we see that we have a better covenant, a new covenant, because as the writer quotes Jeremiah, that covenant was found with fault. And he said there would be a new covenant with Israel. It wouldn't be like the old, where they had to teach every man, know the Lord, because they would all know him, from the least of them to the greatest. You see, the old covenant was a covenant based upon 
family line based upon being children of Abraham. The new covenant in Christ is made up of being a decision, choosing to give your life to Christ. In chapter 10, we continue to learn the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ because we learn there that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. And in verse 14, the writer said, Christ offered one sacrifice himself for sins for all time. For by one sacrifice, for by one offering is perfected for all times those who are sanctified. As we reflected on the Day of Atonement sacrifice, that was an annual sacrifice that Israel had to go through. Every year they would sacrifice those two goats. One into the wilderness, one killed, his blood taken into the tabernacle, into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkled on the altar. And because Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, Paul would be able to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And therefore, Prior to that verse, in verse 17, he said, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. So when you obeyed the gospel of Christ, and you were buried with him in the waters of baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, you became new. And the blood of his Son continues to cleanse us, as we learn in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his Son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So it is in Christ, because of his sacrifice on the cross, that those who died under the law, that God in his forbearance, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, passed over their sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just, just in forgiving those who died under the law. Those who partook of that Day of Atonement sacrifice. They were just. God was just in forgiving them. And he would be the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 3. See, they didn't have to believe in Christ Jesus. But it's always been a matter of faith. For as Habakkuk said in chapter 2 and verse 4, The righteous shall live by faith. It is finished. The last three words of Jesus spoken from the cross. God planned a plan, and it was finished. Jesus showed us the Father. It was finished. He paid a debt that he did not owe so that we could have life. It is finished. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. That's the life that we want. Satan tried to destroy God's plan and from creation from the very beginning, but he wasn't successful. Satan did bruise Jesus' heel. A minor blow, but Satan was defeated, and Jesus bruised his head, a life-ending blow, if you will. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the tomb, and the tomb became empty on that day, and it remains empty 
to this day. And while the memes that are going on Facebook for those Christians, the church buildings may be empty today, but the tomb is still empty. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached that first sermon on Pentecost. And this is some of what he said. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And as Peter continued to preach, and he taught them from the prophets and taught them from David, they interrupted his sermon and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Because they were pricked in their heart. Reading from Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and Peter and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They probably said it with a little more urgency than that, but that's what they said. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, and with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And with many other words, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. It is finished. But three days later, the tomb was empty. And Jesus rose. And 50 days later, Peter preached Christ, him crucified, him raised from the grave. And nearly 3,000 obeyed the gospel of Christ, gave their lives to him, having their sins washed away. I don't know where you are today, but I know if you've been touched by this lesson in some way, I'd like you to let me know. My email is on our website, so please send us an email, and I'll be sure to get to it. And so, if you need to make a decision for Christ, let me know. Send me an email. Call our church office, and we'll do whatever we can to assist you. The tomb is empty. Praise God. It is finished. Have a blessed day.